Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. And this is Kirk O'Bear, your friendly host. Kind of interesting news that occurred earlier this week. There was an FBI raid on the apartment and offices of former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. And we don't know too much about what's going on at this point, so we'll be careful not to speculate too much. But um, I wanted to talk about the whole process by which the FBI would obtain a warrant under these circumstances and kind of a broader discussion about how those warrants in, in the general sense are obtained in various different cases. Now, this all comes down to, of course, the requirement in the Constitution in the United States under the Fourth Amendment that no warrant shall issue except upon probable cause. And going back to the men, white men who wear white wigs that uh, were our founding fathers, of course, uh, the idea behind all this was that there needs to be some sort of standard before the government can simply start uh, rooting around in people's private business. And there was an emphasis of uh, making sure that the government has a barrier of sorts that they have to cross before they can start just uh, getting into people's private business. And you see this as kind of a collective um, theme throughout many of, especially the amendments to the Constitution, where uh, there is in the balance between what the government function uh, can be anticipated to be in the future after the documents were actually drafted and how, at least back then, they anticipated life would be for those citizens in the United States and what sort of right to um, live their lives free from arbitrary governmental interference would be. Really, it's a uh, guard against a form of martial law. Um, interestingly, we've had times over the history of our nation when various constitutional provisions as well as federal laws that are designed to protect those privacies have uh, been altered, amended, changed um, in various ways with justifications for each. Um, uh, probably the best historical example that's often cited is when President Lincoln suspended the habeas corpus uh, requirement that somebody be brought before justice within a certain period of time in, in order for there to be um, due process. And that was based on the justification that there were insurgents um, within the Union uh, you know, at least the view was the union was being split and that the states did not have the right, as it were, to um, secede from the union. And, of course, that was a very controversial step. But, of course, there's also the um, very shameful example we have in our history where um, U.S. citizens of Japanese descent were put into basically... Um, camps in order to keep keep their location known and to keep them from integrating or uh, uh, sort of uh, interacting, I should say, with other American citizens. And that, of course, would violate all sorts of constitutional provisions for U.S. citizens, even people born on U.S. soil. So 
the fact that we have these broader constitutional concepts that are designed to um, achieve a particular purpose, um, our history has been sort of littered with examples of how those same provisions are oftentimes not the rule, but uh, the exception to the rule, as it were. So in this particular situation, at least what is being speculated upon is that the FBI obtained warrants to uh, search documents, cell phones, computers, etc., um, that were in the possession of Rudy Giuliani. And it's believed, anyway, that all of this relates to, on a, on a very basic level, for starters, I guess you could say, failing to register as a foreign agent. And we saw uh, General Flynn get in trouble for this same sort of thing, as well as others in the past administration. And there is a basic requirement that if one is going to be engaging in paid lobbying efforts on behalf of a foreign nation, that they are simply supposed to register and tell the government that they're doing that thing. Um, and it's... You know, not not a very complicated requirement. There's a form that one fills out. It's not illegal to do that. You can certainly accept money from a foreign nation, and in this case, they believe that there are connections to Ukraine. Um, again, that's not anything that is in our country with all of its freedoms. Uh, it can be done. It's just that if there's something... I suppose the registration requirement is there for two reasons. One, so that the government in general is aware of the fact that one is acting on behalf of a foreign government. Uh, and then I suppose that can lead to further inquiry as to whether or not that is uh, that is legal or not in terms of what the actual lobbying is. If it involves uh, payments to you know government officials, then certainly there's other criminal things that could be part of that. But you know, the basic requirement that you fill out a form and file it is really, you know, what gets the FBI in the door on this thing. And I just want to talk in general how those, um, it's a very common occurrence where uh, a prosecutorial agency, let's just say a government agency, will be uh, investigating something about somebody and They'll, they'll look for something very specific because they believe they have probable cause to believe that they'll find a thing, a document, a file, a something. And it's been the pattern and practice of law enforcement agencies to sort of utilize that as a toe in the door, so to speak. And once that happens, uh, what they end up looking for can be very expansive, and they don't necessarily have to say so in a search warrant affidavit. I can give you a really good example. There are cases that go back to um, search warrant affidavits, and just so you understand the process, in order for a warrant to be granted, I'll tell you in Wisconsin how it works, there either has to be a written sworn affidavit from somebody who's familiar with the facts leading up to the investigation and what law enforcement wants to do, that sets forth specific enough information that would give a neutral and detached magistrate uh, a belief that there is probable cause to believe that there is evidence of a crime contained in a place, specific place, um, and then 
that it results in the issuance of a warrant. The other way it can be done is we have a procedure in Wisconsin where it can be done by a telephone hearing, and they do that because sometimes a warrant has to be granted, you know, at 2 a.m. or something like that, and they got to wake up a court commissioner or a judge in the middle of the night, and, you know, we just have a, a requirement that that also be recorded is basically it. But there are similar procedures. Usually what we see in the federal system is that uh, because the federal laws are so complicated, we do tend to see affidavits more often than sworn, you know, live, telephonic, or otherwise testimony. So assuming that uh, the FBI or some other agency can say, hey, we've been doing this investigation, we have this witness that says such and such, we've traced this thing to this point, we believe that if we'll... Uh, if we're able to go in with the court's authority, we'll find such and such. There was a case that goes back many, many years that talks about um, an affidavit that was filed uh, where law, and law enforcement agents believed that they would find a particular um, shotgun that was used in the commission of a crime. And the warrant was granted for that. And then, upon the execution of the warrant, there was uh, searches in places that were not capable of holding <laughs> due to size and regular basic physics. Um, it could not hold a shotgun, such as desk drawers and under rugs and inside of a couch and stuff like that. And the warrant was challenged. And the... The result of that case, as well as a line of other cases that occurred over the years, was that it basically encouraged law enforcement agencies to put stuff into their uh, affidavits asking for things that could be very hidden anywhere. And one of the things we see, which is really weird if you ask me, is this request to find documents that establish residency or presence in the the place. Okay. So I want you to hold that thought for a second and we'll talk about the impact of that uh, when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Uh, before the break, we were talking about um, the evolution of this practice of including things in a search warrant affidavit that would allow law enforcement officers to look in virtually any place um, within a residence, building, car, whatever. Uh, in order to con conduct a thorough search. And if we back up for just a second, remember that a warrant has to be based on probable cause that a certain thing will be found in a certain place. And you know, granted, the other side of the coin is that oftentimes law enforcement will believe that there's more than a possibility is really the best way to state it. Uh, from a legal standpoint. And more than a possibility could mean probable cause, but it depends the, on the context of how we're using that phrase. And you'll note that nowhere in the Constitution is probable cause actually defined. That's something that has occurred over hundreds of years of interpretation and, and what it should mean, you know, given the context. So I was talking before the break about how um, there had been this trend that continues to this day where if uh, law enforcement are looking for uh, evidence of a crime and they specify what, the, what they, they think the crime is, what the evidence of that crime will be, and why they think they will find it there, 
Um, then they also include, in almost every case, this little clause that says, we also want to look for, quote unquote, identifiers. So let's use the Giuliani case as an example. Um, just so you can see how kind of ludicrous this is. Um, let's say they're, they know that what they're looking for is probably going to be on a computer or a hard drive or whatever, or a phone. And they'll often include in the search warrant affidavit that they also want to search for evidence that the person, you know, lived there or was present there. And that could include an envelope with an address on it. It could include an ID card or, you know, a laundry ticket, I suppose. And the smaller the document or <laughs> item that could be included in that definition of quote-unquote identifiers, the more authority that gives law enforcement to search everywhere. So you'll recall the case I was talking about with the shotgun. If they know they're looking for a shotgun, they probably wouldn't be allowed to look inside of envelopes or small packages where from the outside it's obvious that it could not contain a shotgun. But when you say, hey, we also want to look for any kind of paperwork that could be on the premises that shows that the premises was occupied or belongs to the person who, you know, they already know <laughs> um, is occupying that residence. So it's crazy. But you, so the way that you see these things uh, put together in an affidavit will say, we've done all this investigation. We know that Mr. Giuliani works at this particular location or lives in this particular apartment. And how do we know that? Well, because we searched utility bills and we looked at mail records and we asked around the neighborhood, you know, hey, has Rudy been here in the past couple months? And people said, yeah, or they followed him there and they have all this evidence as to why or how recently someone's been there. But then just for good measure, they want to ask, uh, you know, the judge or magistrate that gives the authority to do the search to look for these identifiers. And what's happening here is that means that you can look anywhere because, I mean, like underneath or inside the cushions of, uh, you know, a bed, there could be a, an envelope that has Rudy Giuliani's address on it. Oh, yeah. Well, are they really looking for that? No, they're looking. They want to look everywhere within a particular place. And they add this stuff in there because it doesn't, there's no limit on where one could be hiding, you know, I don't know, something with their name on it, which is crazy. But of course, um, it's, it's a trick. It's a game. And it's all been something that's sort of been uh, absorbed into the, what police always ask for. I see it in every single affidavit that I ever see. And, the, and of course, they're Justification for this is that well, if we find the shotgun on the presence on the presence in the presence of the person's uh, abode, we don't want them to come back and say, "Hey, I never lived there. I never went there," and this will show that uh, they were for whatever reason, which is interesting if you really think about it. And I, I've challenged warrants on this basis in the past. Can't say that I've always been successful, but. Um, it's the process of trying to anticipate what sort of defense a person might have. I'll give you a great example. I had a case years ago where 
the police had responded to a disorderly conduct situation. And it was very clear what had happened, and everybody said, yep, this guy was disorderly. They asked the guy, yep, I was disorderly. Sorry about that. They arrest him. And for other reasons, other completely different reasons, they wanted to have a look at the guy's phone. Now, there was no probable cause to do that for the reasons that they really had. But what they did is they went to a judge and said, hey, we want to look at this guy's phone because he was just arrested for disorderly conduct. And the reason that they said they wanted to do that was in case he had some kind of defense that he would later be able to present. They wanted to know what that might be. It's a bunch of hogwash. They didn't care about that. But, um, you know, they end up getting the warrant and they go through the process of looking in this guy's phone and they find evidence of something completely unrelated to disorderly conduct, which is what they were hoping to find to begin with. And, of course, the person gets prosecuted for something entirely unrelated to the disorderly conduct. And in the process of looking at this, I, I raised the question, can you say that what we're really looking for here, Judge, is that this guy, you know, he got arrested for behaving badly in public, and we're worried that he might claim some kind of defense. Who knows what? It could be that he was too intoxicated to know what he was doing, or there might be some sort of self-defense claim that he could make, or there might be some uh, claim that he was instigated or he was not the aggressor. And we think, we have probable cause, mind you, <laughs> that we'll find evidence of that on his phone, which sounds like a bunch of nonsense. But what the uh, prosecutors and what the law enforcement people knew is that if all they got to do is get that toe in the door, then they can open it on up, which is exactly what happened. So what I raised was, hey, if you are able to say, we want to anticipate, explore, and potentially extinguish any defense that someone might have to this very simple basic charge by looking into all of their private business, that's a legitimate uh, thing. And that's, that's what I challenged. Fought this very, very hard because what that does is it opens the door to everything, everything in the world. Let's say it was Rudy Giuliani. And they're like, well, hey, we're investigating for investigating him for uh, not registering as a foreign agent. We think we'll find evidence of that. But on top of that, we want to know what defense he might have to that charge now. Um, so <laughs> when I'm litigating this, the prosecutor said, well, uh, the defense should be thankful because if law enforcement would... I don't know why they had this voice. They didn't. I'm just, you know, I'm being silly here. But I'll, I'll continue with my prosecutor voice. Well, if uh, the defense should be thankful because they, uh, law enforcement was very concerned about getting a, a full picture here so they could investigate and perhaps consider legitimate uh, defenses or mitigating evidence and so on and so forth. And again, that's hogwash. Because it's not ever law enforcement law enforcement officers, you know, duty to fully explore every possible angle that could come up as a potential defense. In fact, there's case law that talks about that when defense 
lawyers and defendants raise the issue that, hey, why didn't you look at this possibility or why didn't you look at that? The answer often is, hey, we're just there to gather the basic facts. We're not supposed to make judgment decisions about um, what the significance of the evidence is or what it might lead to. We turn that over to the prosecutors and they do with it what they will. Interesting when they're arguing that, um, you know, the police are, are not supposed to be responsible for developing a case that may benefit the defense. On the other hand, in this particular case I'm referencing, they were saying, well, we think it's valuable that uh, since law enforcement had the opportunity to preserve something that might provide a defense, uh, that would be beneficial to the defense. Of course, none of it was. It was highly inculpatory evidence of something completely different, which they were hoping they would find, and they struck gold in that situation. So, all right, we'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back. I want to switch gears a little bit because there is a case that's on its way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and it, it's kind of an interesting fact pattern, and I want to talk about the implications for, in the much broader sense as to what this could all mean. So, a um, little bit of background. There was a case a few years ago that talks about how the standard procedure whereby a law enforcement officer can basically order a hospital person to take the blood of a drunk driving suspect regardless of their consent uh, was basically flipped on its head. And a standard practice that had been around for roughly 40 years was reversed nationwide. And you've probably heard me talk about this on the show before, but that all goes back to a case in 1966 called Schmerber versus California. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court had held that the evanescent evidence that is contained within one's bloodstream, i.e. alcohol, is rapidly dissipating at all times and that there is an urgency um, in order to quickly obtain that evidence before it disappears. So um, basically they had held that it's unreasonable to expect a law enforcement officer to obtain a warrant under those circumstances because it would take too long. Mind you, this was 1966. So over the years, and it took until whatever year it was, what was it, 2018, I think, in order for that same issue to be finally re-examined in the United States Supreme Court to say, well, wait a minute, that's not really true um, for two reasons. One, technology has advanced to the point where everybody has a cell phone, including cops and people that could issue a warrant, like judges, um, at all hours of the day. Um, there are forms where it could literally take a police officer less than you know three minutes to uh, gin up a um, an affidavit for such a warrant. And Wisconsin is a good example, as I referenced earlier in the show, where if you don't have time to do that, you get on the phone and you have a recorded phone call. Easy peasy, right? There's that. So it's not the same as in the mid 60s when they'd have to go and back to the police station and type something up in triplicate with carbon paper and, you know, maybe drive three hours to find the judge or whatever. Um, those are all things that I think the U.S. Supreme Court was kind of fantasizing about how hard it could be. So that's been obviated by technology, but also there was a basic fundamental um, 
physiological assumption in in the Schmerber case that we now know and probably did back then simply isn't true. And that is that when alcohol is in a person's system, that it's always dissipating. You know, it depends on when the person drank the alcohol. It depends on how much food was in their stomach. It depends on their weight, how much water volume is in their bloodstream, all kinds of factors. And it's probably equally likely that the alcohol concentration could be rising during that same period. So acknowledging the fact that there have been various reasons that um, called into question the basic premise behind that, there was a significant shift in the law. And it said that, okay, um, there are times when you might not, as a law enforcement agent, be able to quickly get a warrant and you may be concerned about this, that, and the other thing. But that in general, that shouldn't be the rule. That shouldn't be the general rule. You shouldn't be looking for exceptions to the rule to justify it. It should be the other way around. That when a warrant is required, you should try to get it. Okay? Now, you got to add another layer to that. All states in the United States have some form of implied consent law as it relates to driving. You, again, you've heard me talk about this in the show before, but basically it stems from the state's regulatory authority to issue and uh, control licenses to drive, right? And since that's not something that anyone has a right to, you don't have a fundamental right to drive. It's not doesn't say so anywhere in any law or in certainly not in the Constitution. And because it's a privilege and not a right, while well, the state has the ability to, uh, you know, adjust, revoke, suspend, whatever, those privileges. And in light of that, they can also put conditions on everyone's uh privilege to drive. And one of those that's been adopted over the years is that if one is driving and an officer suspects that they have been doing so while under the influence, they can request that the person submit to a blood test or a breath test. Now, it's clear that what they're asking for is somebody consenting to a search. Same thing as in they, they knock on your door and say, hey, Mr. O'Bear, we'd like to come in your house and take a look around. Is that okay with you? You know, a good, responsible citizen would say, no, not unless you have a warrant. That's the way it's supposed to work, regardless of what's in your house, right? But, you know, many of us will say, hey, I got nothing to hide. Come on in, boys. And it's the same sort of process where, okay, if where I'm going to give you the chance to provide evidence against yourself, if you'd like to, sir. And then the suspect will say yes or no. So... What happened was there have been various ruminations in the law or surrounding the law, dealing with policy and all these different aspects that affect what happens if someone says no. If, in general, uh, a cop is saying, hey, will you consent to a test of your blood, breath, urine? You know, the right answer is yes, because there are... Um, pretty severe penalties that apply to your privilege to operate a motor vehicle, not necessarily to what, what might happen to somebody criminally down the road, but certainly those privileges, there is a pr pretty harsh uh, punishment for simply not saying yes. And that's something that's been litigated and continuously has been upheld as okay, because it's not something that someone has a right to. But let's take it a step further, and this is, this is significant. Um, 
there was a case called Birchfield. And Birchfield case says that if somebody says no um, in response to that question, the police are then required to either obtain a warrant or justify the search against the person's consent under the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement. So what that means is that um, in most cases, one would have to get a warrant. So um, flash forward, there's a case that is pending and the facts of that case involve somebody who was involved in an accident. The police, you know, they didn't really get to the issue of whether they did or didn't have probable cause because the officer decided um, and this is probably based on the officer not being familiar with developments in the case law, including U.S. Supreme Court case law, ends up ordering somebody to submit to a blood test without getting a warrant. Could have been a timing issue where, you know, there hadn't been proper training, but th that is a no-no nowadays after um, the law has changed. So what ends up happening is the, the person ends up, you know, giving a blood test and they didn't, it's a test they didn't consent to without a warrant. So there's a challenge to that uh, test result and the defendant wins and should have. And the judge says, yep, nope, this is a violation of uh, the Fourth Amendment. You can't do that. Uh, read your case law. Mr. Officer, and next time, make sure that you either get a warrant or you don't take the blood, or you justify it under a true exigent circumstances situation. So, judge rules in favor of the defendant at a hearing that was many, many months after the incident itself. So, here's where it gets tricky. Prosecutor then says, oh, no problem. I'm just going to issue a subpoena to the medical staff that took the guy's blood and that way i'll get the search results and then that way i can submit them into evidence Ooh, tricky so the idea here is that the, so the prosecutor's like i don't care yeah so i i that test result gets suppressed under that theory i've got a different one and that is i believe there is evidence of a crime that's being held in the confidential mind you confidential medical records of a defendant. And I, why does he think he has probable cause? Because he already knows what the test result is. Because <laughs> that's what the subject of the previous suppression hearing was. I have reason to believe that there is evidence in uh, the defendant's medical records that will show there was a prohibited alcohol concentration in his blood. How do I know that? Because I already know what the result is from this other hearing. <laughs> So, see, see the twists and turns here, how fascinating the law can really be? I know it's boring sometimes, but, you know, this is like a game of chess, you know, where the poor guy stuck in the middle of the whole thing, you know, uh, who knows what the ultimate impact will be, because it's still being litigated all the way up to our Supreme Court. But that same trial court said, oh, different theory. Okay, Mr. Prosecutor. I see what you're saying, and you're saying that there, you still know that that evidence is there, and you do have probable cause. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and issue that subpoena that was based on probable cause, basically an order to the medical staff to turn over those records. All right, hold that thought. We'll be right back. All right, getting back to our point here, this interesting case that deals with um, prosecution asking for 
records that they previously thought they could use, and then they're just trying another method to get them, and the court approves it. And then the defense comes back and says, hey, wait, judge, you just suppressed this stuff. They used the stuff that you suppressed as a basis for this other warrant. And there is this principle in the law that says uh, if you're going to try and do that, I have my own reservations about whether it should be attempted for other reasons, but if you're going to try and do that, you need to prove that it comes from an independent source. We call it the independent source doctrine. And what that says is that even if um, a prosecutorial agency, law enforcement agency, has obtained evidence that was in violation of a person's constitutional rights, they can still try and get that evidence through other means as long as it's from an independent source. And even though the prosecutor made the, I would say, mistake of saying, of course I know what the blood test result is because we were just talking about it in court the other day, um, there was an argument that, hey, adding everything else up there was probable cause to believe that there was a prohibited alcohol concentration because of the accident, because of the odor of alcohol, because of all these other things that the officer observed, which was the reason why he ordered the guy to submit to the blood test to begin with. So it's kind of a circular argument. What they're saying is that, hey, the defense came in here and said, if the cop had all this probable cause, he should have gotten a warrant. And they won the suppression based on the fact that the cop didn't. Okay? Uh, so then they're saying, well, if all that's true, judge, then clearly the officer would have had probable cause to believe that whatever's in that person's blood would be evidence of a crime. Plus, we know what the result is because we just talked about it in court. And there was this whole discussion about the fact that during the suppression hearing, and this is kind of weird, kind of a weird twist on it, there was discussion about what that result was. And the suppression hearing, of course, occurs far before trial, long before any jury is involved in this process. It's just the parties and the judge and witnesses. So the judge can consider a legal issue in advance of trial. So in that context, the prosecutor says, we talked about those things. We all know what that result is. And I'm not using the result that was suppressed at trial. What I'm using is that result which was suppressed as a means plus everything the cops saw to get this subpoena issued for confidential medical records, essentially the, the functional equivalent of a warrant. Crazy argument, but the trial court buys it and says, yep, okay, no problem. It goes up to the Court of Appeals, and they're like, yeah, okay, kind of tricky, but we, we like the ingenuity behind <laughs> the prosecutor. And, you know, we like to see the prosecution win, uh, almost always. So, yeah, sounds good to us. So it creates this whole quagmire of competing constitutional concerns. And one of them, one of the big ones, this bothers me a lot, is the ever-increasing trend with ever-increasing velocity towards ignoring the well-respected traditional boundaries of confidentiality. Interesting, because not too long ago, year and a half, two years ago approximately, our state, along with many others, passed this thing called Marcy's Law. And what that has to do with is enhancing, quote-unquote, victims' rights. 
and that includes um, making sure that uh, there are rights to privacy that are protected. For example, there's provisions in there that say a victim or an alleged victim's family member uh, are not required to make any statements to the defense if requested to do so. Um, they don't have to participate in the discovery process. They don't have to consent to all sorts of things. And their voice can be stated and heard. And it's all based on and, and all these provisions whereby anyone named in a criminal complaint, except for the defendant, can go by initials now so that it's kind of obfuscated and hidden from public view as to who this person might be. And I get the concerns. It makes sense. But it's this enhancement for the respecting and creating a right of privacy that wasn't there before. So let's flip that coin over because the trend has been if someone's suspected of something uh, and we have a competing uh, traditional respect for confidentiality in medical records, in treatment records, in uh, conversations between spouses that would fall under the marital privilege. Uh, confessions made to a clergy member, uh, statements made to a psychiatrist or psychologist. And when the prosecution believes that they can have access to those records and they can attack it from a number of different angles, you know, nine times out of ten, they get them. They find a way to get them because of all these exceptions to that confidentiality. And tracing this through the statutes and all the case law is literally like trying to find a needle in a thousand haystacks. Because every case that deals with these issues, unless you go back to like the early 1900s, uh, talks about a situation where the prosecution, naturally, was looking for evidence of a crime. They were pushing the limit in terms of whether someone, who and when and what could be claimed as confidential. And ultimately ends up getting the evidence. The defense pushes back and case after case after case after case. We see that it's been whittled away. But there are very, very good reasons for why that type of confidentiality must be, simply must be protected in our society. And it really stems from, again, this broader idea that when you're living your life in our society... Your focus should be on your happiness, your pursuit of happiness, your freedom, your the, the benefits of being a, an American citizen or someone living in our free country. Freedom. That's what it's supposed to be about. You're not supposed to be worried that when you're talking to your wife or your husband about something with pillow talk that it's going to come back and haunt you because the prosecutors are going to know about something. You're not supposed to hold back when, I'll give you a great example. Let's say, um, you know, someone's committing some sort of crime where it's arguable if they were or weren't, but they, they go to the doctor and the doctor say, hey, how did you get hurt? And the person says something that could implicate him or her, you know, in a crime. But the reason that the patient says so is because the doctor needs to know in order to treat you and try and save your life. Or decide what the appropriate medication would be, you know, or the mechanism of injury. You know, was this a gun? Was it a crowbar? What did you, 
If you were stumbled and were tripping, was it when you were running away from a crime scene? Who knows? So things are said in the course of medical treatment that are 100% confidential and should be under the theory that a, that it, a physician, treating physician, needs to know the truth and that a patient should not worry that anything they say is going to come back and be a basis for prosecution if they're hoping to obtain effective medical treatment. Just like if someone's going to a psychiatrist and they got to delve into the person's history, delve into their past, talk about, you know, I don't know, whatever, Freudian things, whatever it might be. Well, in order for any of that to have any benefit, in order for therapy, treatment, uh, you know, talk therapy, whatever you want to call it, psychotherapy, I don't know, it requires that the person say what's actually on their mind, that they actually reveal what those thoughts and feelings are. Otherwise, it's all a charade. And it's presumed, and should be, that when someone's engaging in that type of activity or conversation, they should internally know that nothing they say is going to leave that room. How many times have you heard that saying, hey, what we say here doesn't leave this room, right? It's because of the fact that there are certain things that happen in our society that need to have that layer of protection in order for that thing to do what it's supposed to do. Effective treatment, effective uh, counseling, whatever it may be. It's got to be the truth. And, and the truth only comes out if someone isn't hesitating to talk about what it is. And I don't care if they're talking about something, you know, admitting a crime or whatever it is. You know, <laughs> I'm just thinking of the movie Old School where um, Will Ferrell and his wife, or then they go into therapy and they're like, this is a safe zone. And then he starts saying things that, you know, nobody, <laughs> no husband would say in front of their wife. And then he's like, what? I thought this was a safe zone. Well, you know, you get the point. All right, I'll give you updates on all this stuff. Uh, and when we come back next week, as you can join us every week right here on 1330 and 101.5, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. We're going to get John in next week. He's been super, super busy. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody.